Well, today we're going to learn of another miracle that Jesus performed. This time, he's going to heal a centurion servant. Now, the healing of this Gentile centurion servant is a reminder that salvation is for the Gentiles as well. Now, I think we as Christians living in 2023 America, we often can yawn at this idea of Gentile inclusion because that's the way it's been for some 1,900 years. But I want you to think about how in the first century A.D., this is a big deal. And if we think about it, our inclusion into the family of God, it's a big deal still. Now, we're also going to learn afresh today that a person's ethnicity or genetics in no way is impressive to God. God is only impressed with his son, and the only way that you can be attached to the son of God is by faith alone. Today, we learn afresh from this text in Matthew that salvation has always been and will always be by faith alone in Christ alone. Now let's begin here in Matthew 8, 5 through 7. We're going to see an amazing dialogue between Jesus and the centurion. Notice it says, And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. Now, the first thing I want you to take note of is that there's been a change of location once again. Last time we were in Matthew, we saw that Jesus had come down off the mountain because, again, Matthew portrays Jesus as the second Moses who taught up on the mountain. Now, remember last time I said more than likely Jesus came across the leper in the countryside as he's on the way to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is significant because that is the new headquarters for Jesus' ministry ever since Matthew chapter 4, verse 13. Jesus left Nazareth. The new headquarters is Capernaum. Now, Capernaum was on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, and it was significant because it was also a border town. It bordered on the Syrophoenician Empire to the northwest, and so this explains why the Romans would have had a military garrison there, and it explains why it was likely that Jesus came across the centurion. Now, who is the centurion? Let me define what a centurion is so you understand the weightiness and the significance of who this man was. The Roman centurion was really the secret sauce that made the Roman legions work. Um, a way to think about the centurion, he was certainly an officer, but think about it in the terms of the uh, modern American military. He was much like a U.S. Army captain. Now, why do I say that? Well, think about the very high-ranking generals will run a corps. Lesser generals will run an army. Lesser generals from there will run a division. Colonels run the regiment. The majors run the battalions. But it's the captain who runs the company of about 200 men. And where the generals, the colonels, and the majors may be behind at the headquarters, the captain is in the field with the troops. That's who the centurion was. They were the men who had the greatest respect in the field because they went into the field with the men. And so that's the kind of respect the centurion would have had. It was a big deal. These were the soldiers of soldiers. Now, notice here, he is absolutely beside himself with the status of his servant, and that's why he's imploring Jesus to come and heal him. The term imploring there, parakaleo, is a strong urging. Why? Because he desperately loves and is attached to his servant. The term servant there, in the Greek, it's pais, P-A-I-S, if you were to transliterate it. And oftentimes, it could be rendered boy. Uh, most often, though, it is rendered servant. And I think the New American Standard Bible is, uh, is really correct in rendering it servant here. Now, the reason I want to mention that it's also a boy is it's more than likely a young lad. A good analogy for who the servant was is think today of a modern-day bat boy in Major League Baseball. That was the servant. What does the bat boy do? He takes care of the equipment. He shags the balls. He gets the bats. That was the servant here. He made sure that the centurion's equipment, the armor, the sword, the dagger, all of it was prepared and ready to roll. And so you can imagine the attachment that the centurion had to this young lad. He would be a father figure to the young lad, and the young lad would be like a son. And so he's absolutely destroyed that this son of his, this servant, is paralyzed, fearfully tormented. That's the reason for the request. 
Now, notice Jesus' response. Here, the New American Standard Bible renders it straightforwardly as a statement. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. In fact, most of your English versions will render it that way. However, there is some scholarship that would suggest it's better rendered as a question. The question would be, you want me to come and heal him? In fact, that's how, and I don't advocate this translation too often, but the TNIV has it that way and the New English Bible. But let me explain why I think that's the better reading. First of all, notice the I. The I is emphatic, ego, in the Greek text, and that's redundant. Why? Because the verb, will come, has a subject implied in it. And so it's Jesus saying, I myself will come. Well, the second reason, more than likely, it's probably a question, the most important reason, is because of the response of the centurion. Jesus, by what he says, seems to be throwing up an obstacle in the way of the centurion. The direct statement of Jesus does not do that, but the question does. What I think Jesus is saying is, you want me to come and heal him? That's the kind of force that I think that we have here. In fact, listen to this scholar in the book of Matthew, McNeil. He says it this way. He says, quote, If Jesus' words are a direct statement assenting to the request that he would come, the humble answer of the centurion with its profound faith is called forth by no apparent cause, unquote. Well said. Dear ones, Jesus' question is designed to provoke the faith that underlies the centurion's desire. Think of it this way. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 15, you had this Syrophoenician woman? She's a Canaanite, a Gentile, and a woman, according to the Israelite culture, far off from God. Yet she is so concerned about her daughter being demon-possessed, she goes to the feet of Jesus. And what does Jesus do? Does he say, of course, I'm going to come right away? No, he plays a little bit of a game with her to see what kind of faith she has. He says, wasn't I sent only to the lost sheep of Israel? And then she persists. She persists. And then Jesus says to her, well, wait a minute. Am I to take the bread that belongs to the children and to throw it to the dogs? And do you remember her response? She says, Lord, but even the, the dogs get the crumbs from the master's table. Jesus is smitten. Again, it was a test. No, she has faith. The same thing happens here. You want me to come and heal him? Listen to the response, the amazing faith and the response of the centurion. Matthew 8, 8 through 9, it says, But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Dear ones, first of all, notice in red, the centurion says, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. The term worthy there, he kaunos, literally can be rendered sufficient or worthy, I like actually better. The idea is that he is not worthy of Jesus coming into his home. And I don't think the centurion's concern was to make Jesus somehow ritually unclean. Jesus, when he healed the leper, showed that he wasn't concerned about that. I think the display by the centurion, by calling Jesus Lord, as he knows that this Jesus of Nazareth is of a rank that he's not worthy of having under his roof. But notice the tremendous faith. Notice we have a strong contrastive conjunction with the but. He says, but just say the word. Just say the word. And I know my servant's going to be healed. That is tremendous faith. Now, what accounts for that kind of faith? Notice the reasoning that the centurion has. We're given an explanatory for. Why is it the centurion trusts that Jesus doesn't have to come on the scene and be in the home, but if he just says the word, it will be done? Here's the reasoning. He says, for I also am a man under authority. The centurion knows as a soldier That when he says to one man go, or another man come, or to a servant do this and it's done, he knows that ultimately, if his soldiers don't obey him, they're not obeying the Roman emperor. This man knows that Jesus has the very authority of God. 
That's the kind of faith that he has. In fact, what's so beautiful is just as we had an emphatic I put forward in Jesus' question, you have an emphatic I put forward here in verse 9. I think it's beautiful by Matthew. And so we have this great faith. This kind of faith that the centurion is demonstrating says, Lord, I'm not even worthy of having you under my home, but I know your authority. You give the word, I know it'll be done. That is amazing faith. Oftentimes, brothers and sisters, and most often in the scriptures, we see amazing grace. But here is one of the instances where you do see, in fact, amazing faith. Not so says Eric Dalma, so says the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we find here in verses 10 through 12. Jesus, just like with that Syrophoenician woman, is smitten. Matthew 8, 10 through 12. It says, Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jones, notice here, Jesus marveled. Thamazo, he marveled. He was amazed at the faith that the centurion had. In fact, that term thamazo was only used twice of Jesus in the New Testament. It's first used in Mark 6, 6, where Jesus marvels at the unbelief of the Jews. And of course, there's deep irony there. If anyone should have known who Jesus was, it was the Jews. But here, the second time Thamatsu is used, it is the marveling of the faith of this Gentile. And I think there's great irony there. Think about Jesus does his ministry in the Jewish area around the Sea of Galilee. Bethsaida, Chorazin, he does all these miracles. In his hometown synagogue, he not only does miracles in Nazareth, but he teaches with extraordinary authority, and yet none of them believe in him, or very few. It's, a, it's the minority report. And so the Jews who had the patriarchs, the promises, the covenants, the scriptures, they by and large miss it, and yet this far-off Roman Gentile centurion gets it. How hated was a Roman centurion? Not only is he a Gentile, but he's responsible for subjugating Israel. You can't get any more hated than a centurion in the eyes of the average Israelite. It'd be like if the communist Chinese took over America, what would you think of one of their lieutenants? Probably you wouldn't think much of it. That's the kind of idea. That's the kind of idea that we see present here. And so we see that in the book of Matthew, there is a great reversal. Those who have the privilege of the patriarchs, the genetics, that is the Jews, they by and large miss it, but we have unexpected people by faith, by the power of the Spirit, are coming to have salvation in the Messiah. Now, notice Jesus uses this Gentile centurion's faith as an occasion to explain that those who belong to him don't belong because of their genetics, but based on faith. Notice Jesus says, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What does it mean that they'll come from the east and the west? He's talking about Gentile inclusion. Now, I'll talk about more of this in our application where, yes, the Old Testament foreshadowed and predicted that there would be Gentile inclusion in the great messianic kingdom. In fact, you'll see it as early as the law of Moses in Genesis chapter 12. That's when you begin to see it. Now, what does he mean that there will be many then, these Gentiles, who will recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, he's talking about the great messianic banquet. This is that great banquet that we refer to often as the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's referred to, by the way, in Isaiah 25, verses 6 through 9. I'll be coming to that at some point in my eschatology course on YouTube. So, this great messianic banquet, that will be inhabited not just by genetic Jews, but by Gentiles all by faith. That's the great plan. By the way, let me uh, pump an article, promote an article here that Bob Dway had written. It's volume 126. Of all the articles that Bob has written, this is in my top five favorites. It's hard to weed them down, but this is one of my top five favorites. 
It's called Dining with the King. Jesus Dines with Sinners. Again, volume 126. If you have not read that or read it recently, read it. And I tell you what, you'll take the Lord's Supper next time and you won't be the same. At the end of the day, every time we do the Lord's Supper, it is a great foreshadowing, a down payment, a rehearsal dinner, if you will, for the great marriage supper of the Lamb, the Messianic banquet. So again, Jesus is saying this happens by faith, not by genetics. Now, notice the irony. The irony is that the sons of the kingdom are going to be cast into the outer darkness. The sons of the kingdom were those who considered themselves members of the kingdom purely based on their race. They thought they were in like Flynn because they were descendants physically of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If they miss Christ by having no faith in him, they're going to be those who enter in to the lake of fire. Jesus cannot be any more direct that race, genetics, ethnicity, it means nothing. All that impresses God is his son. And the only way that you can be attached to the son is by faith alone. By the way, let me back up one point. I want you to see the term faith. I'm going to show you the verbal form of that in the next slide. Faith is all over, not just the epistles, but the gospels as well. Why? Because salvation has always been and will always be by faith alone. Now, in verse 13, we come to this conclusion. It says, And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Germans, notice here in blue, Jesus picks up on the authority motif, realize that the healing was not caused by the man's faith, but by Christ's word. But what Jesus is affirming is that this centurion's faith was well-placed. Jesus is the one who can heal. He is the fulfillment of Isaiah 35, 5 through 6. That the lepers will be cleansed, the lame, remember we have a paralyzed boy here that's been healed, the lame will leap like a deer, the blind will see, the deaf will hear, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus is the fulfillment of Isaiah 35. And so that's why we see the summary statement by Matthew. He says, and the servant was healed that very moment. Matthew designs these miracles to show us that in the person and work of Nazareth, the messianic age has dawned. That indeed, these miraculous things prove all of the claims of Christ. That he is Israel's Messiah. But again, the only way anyone will belong to him isn't by works, it's not by race, class, gender, it's by faith alone. Now, let's come to some applications. I want to hit on these themes that we looked at briefly. Let's delve into them with greater detail. Number one, we should know that the Old Testament predicted Gentile inclusion into Messiah's kingdom. Now, as I say that, I'm not saying that there was a full-blown doctrine of the church, which really really still was a mystery at the time that Paul revealed it, but I'm saying that the hint and prophecy of Gentile inclusion was certainly there in the Old Testament. Number two, we must know that the status of race, class, and gender does not impress God. There's a lot of people in our culture that need to hear this. At the end of the day, I see in America, and I'm not saying that there aren't others, I'm saying the two grand religions, as it were, is Karl Marx or Christ. If you're going to follow Marx and his ethos, his doctrine, race, class, gender is exceedingly important. But if you're going to follow Christ, it's not. And I think we, as we go out into the culture today, those are the words that have to be on our lips. You have to ask your neighbors, your loved ones, as the time grows short, is it going to be Marx or is it going to be Christ? Because you can't serve both. That's how direct I think we should be. Number three, we must see afresh that salvation is by faith alone. It's always been by faith alone. It always will be. Let's begin with number one. The promise that God's salvific plan would include Gentiles is seen all the way back in the Old Testament. In fact, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3. Again, turn your Bibles to Genesis 12, 2 through 3. And I know for many of you in here, you probably have this passage memorized. You've read it so often. But for the sake of new people and even the sake of a reminder for all of us. Let's turn to that passage 
and remind ourselves that as early as the book of Moses, the law of Moses, we see the promise of Gentile inclusion. So again, turn your Bibles to Genesis 12, verses 2 through 3. Now remember, as you're turning there, when you're in Genesis 11, you see this worldwide rebellion. All the nations gather together to come up with a one world order, as it were. They build the Tower of Babel. What does God do? Well, he confuses their language. He disperses them. And then in Genesis 12, he starts over with a new humanity. The humanity that he's going to bring about is going to one day rule over the entire planet in the millennial kingdom. That's part of our eschatology. And that new family, that new race, is going to come from Abraham. But the way that you're related to Abraham isn't genetic. It's by faith alone. But he's hinting at it here, the great promise for Abraham. Notice Genesis 12, 2 through 3. God says, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Notice that last phrase, in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Why? Because they're going to come from the east and the west and the north and the south, and your race, your class, your gender, it means nothing. People by faith are going to be brought in to the great messianic kingdom. That's what's being taught. Now, that's the law of Moses. As early as the law of Moses, we're seeing that. What about the historical books? Even in the historical books of the Old Testament, we see the inclusion of Gentiles, for example, in Jesus' genealogy. Uh, think about in Joshua chapter 2, Ruth. Remember, or not Ruth, Rahab. Rahab sends the people looking for the Jewish spies one way while the spies go the other way. Why? Because she had faith in Yahweh. She's in the lineage of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, go to the book of Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite Gentile, and yet she's in the lineage of Jesus Christ. So again, we're seeing in the Old Testament, your pedigree, your race, and your ethnicity means nothing. Notice here in Isaiah, Isaiah 49.6, we see the great promise that the Messiah would be a light to the nations. Notice the Lord says through Isaiah, he says, It is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones of Israel. I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. I want you to think about how Israel was designed by God to be a light to the nations. What was the problem with Israel? They became like the nations. They wanted the idolatry and the gods of the nations. And so God said, you want to live like them? Why don't you live amongst them? And he sent them in to Babylonian captivity. You want to be a pagan? Why don't you go live with the pagans for a while? Israel failed, and so there needed to be a new faithful son. That's Jesus. And so he is going to be the light to the nations that Israel failed to be. That's what this is talking about. This servant is the Messiah. And as you read today in Matthew 8, 5 through 13, this Gentile centurion coming to faith and going to one day, you're going to meet him in the kingdom. He's going to be there. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 49, 6. That yes, in the person and work of Jesus of Nazareth, you have a servant who is a light to the nations. He really is. Now, let me show you a little bit more in Isaiah 49, or Isaiah 49, 12. It says, Behold, these, again, these are the Gentiles, will come from afar, and lo, these will come from the north and from the west, and these from the land of Sinim. Sinim there, by the way, is the land of Egypt. That is, there's going to be Gentile inclusion, just as Jesus said today in our Matthew 8 text. They're going to come from the east and from the west. They're going to be Gentiles from all over the place. Why? Because you join the kingdom of God by faith alone in Christ alone. Genetics means nothing. Turn your Bibles to Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. Isaiah chapter 56. I want you to see just to what extent God shows how the foreigner the foreign Gentile will be included in the glorious kingdom. Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. Some years ago when I was in seminary, I wrote a paper on this passage, and I don't have time to get into all the details, but it is an amazing text. 
Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. Let's begin by reading verse 3. Notice the Lord gives this promise. Isaiah 56, 3. He says, Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. Let's stop there. The Lord is giving a promise that if you're a foreigner, a Gentile, part of the goyim, the nations, that if you come to faith in him, you're not going to be excluded. Now, the very next example that the Lord will use is that of a eunuch. Now, what is a eunuch? To be graphic, it's a castrated man. And to the Jew, you couldn't be any more cursed than a foreign Gentile eunuch. Why? Because they couldn't have kids. So remember, to the Jew, having children and grandchildren, that's everything. And it's important to us, and it should be. It's a godly thing. And so you couldn't get any more cursed in the Israelite mind than being a eunuch. And yet, what is the promise the Lord gives? He's taking the worst case possible, the worst possible case. You can't get any more cursed, far-off Gentile eunuch. That's as bad as it gets. Notice what the Lord promises. He says, Nor let the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and choose what pleases me, to them I will give in my house and within my walls a memorial and a name better than that of the sons and daughters I will give them an everlasting name which will not be cut off. Even though the eunuch can never have children, they're going to be given a name in the kingdom forevermore that will never be lost. They're going to be given eternal life. They're going to be full participants of the glorious kingdom that Christ will bring. That's the great promise. Dear ones, I hope you get the idea that genetics means nothing. Although we don't have a systematic teaching about the church until we get to the New Testament, the idea of Gentile inclusion is all over the place in the Old Testament. And I know, again, as we as Christians, we kind of yawn at it because we are removed from the first century by some 1,900 years. And so we kind of yawn, oh yeah, Gentile inclusion, but it was a big deal. It's a big deal in Matthew chapter 8 when all of a sudden a Gentile Roman centurion finds healing from the Messiah. He is going to enter into this glorious kingdom, not because of his pedigree, his race, his class, his gender, but because his faith in Israel's Messiah. Okay, let's go to our second issue then. This leads me to this idea of race, class, gender. It can't save. And the reason I want to focus on that is today's society is focused almost exclusively now, and I'm talking about modern culture, the, or postmodern culture for that matter, in our society, it's focused on race, class, gender as a way of no longer treating people as individuals, but various political groups. Now, in Jesus' day, the great divide was between Jew and Gentile. And there was a reason for that. Uh, the Jews didn't just come up with this divide themselves. Remember, jot this verse down in Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9. That text explicitly states that of all the nations that have ever existed or ever will exist, there was one nation that God alone chose to be his unique inheritance, and that was Israel. All of the other nations were given to the Bnei Elohim, the sons of God, which are part of God's divine council, the angelic realm. So all of the angels have their nations as their inheritance. God takes one nation to be his alone. That's Israel. Okay, and by the way, you can see evidence of this Elsewhere in the scriptures, remember in Daniel chapter 10, Gabriel says that he had been restrained from answering the prayer by what? The prince of Persia. There was a demonic being connected to Persia that restrained Gabriel. How did that fight resolve? Michael the archangel had to step in. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 6, our battle isn't ultimately with flesh and blood, but with principalities and power. It's in the spirit realm. And so, dear ones, because Yahweh takes one nation to be his, in the Jewish mind, salvation is uniquely a Jewish experience. That's how they reason. So what we have today then is Jesus heals a Roman centurion, a crisis. He's confronting Israel. Does race, class, gender, does that really ultimately save? Or has it always been by faith alone? And of course, we see that it's always been by faith alone. Let me show you what Paul said about race, class, and gender here, Romans 2, 28 through 29. Notice it says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, 
nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. Now, dear ones, notice here in bold, where Paul says he is not a Jew who is one outwardly. Could Paul have been any clearer that your race, your ethnicity, it means nothing? The idea of being right before God, a true Jew in God's eyes, is not determined outwardly. It's one that's determined inwardly. The outward circumcision in and of itself means nothing. What matters is the circumcision of the heart. Now, what is the circumcision of the heart? What does that mean? It means that you have a heart that's no longer dead because it's been regenerated by the Spirit and enabled to believe in the Messiah. That's what a circumcised heart is. It's one that can have faith in God and his promises. Let me prove that to you. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 10, verse 16. Let's talk about this importance of the circumcision of the heart. Deuteronomy 10, 16. What you're going to see there, again, this is in the law of Moses. God commands the Israelites to circumcise their heart. Deuteronomy 10, 16, he says, So circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. Now, if you want to understand what it means to circumcise your heart, understand first what it means to no longer stiffen your neck. So think of the Israelites. The picture is that God is calling them. If God is here, their neck is always kind of this way. You ever dealt with a kid? By the way, it's hard. I only have one kid, so he knows I'm talking about him. (laughs) But you have a kid when you're growing up, and you're trying to say, hey, son or daughter, you got to listen to me, and they want nothing to do it, and they keep turning their head. And you finally got to grab them by the ears and say, listen up, buster. You're going to have to do what I say here, right? That's the idea of having a stiff neck, one that keeps looking away from God. In the same way, an uncircumcised heart is an unresponsive heart. But the great command here by God in Deuteronomy 10.16 is literally the command to take their dead heart and make it alive. You know what? They can't do it. And you and I can't either. God is commanding them to do something that's impossible. Are they morally culpable to do it? Oh, yes, they are. But they can't do it. You ever ask your son or daughter when they're little to clean their room? You know they can't do it, but they still, they should. But this is even worse than that. Because our dead heart is something that must be changed. And so that's why, turn your Bibles ahead, just just 20 chapters to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, I want you to see that God will do for them what they can't do for themselves. Now, as you're turning to Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, some of you might be thinking, well, wait a minute, can God command humans to do something that we can't do? Oh, he does all the time. Jesus commands all of us to be perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. How many of you, when you read that, say, that's it. Tomorrow I'm starting, I'm going to be perfect. No one can blame me for anything. If I'm driving, if I'm in the grocery store, I'm perfect. I'm going to just start doing it. No, we know that's a high bar. And that without the power of God, we can't do anything that's pleasing to him. That's the point. We have to be those who are obedient, but we know we have to rely upon God's power. Notice Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. This is the great promise. It says, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart in the heart of your descendants, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. God is going to have to do for them what they cannot do for themselves. He's going to give them the circumcision of the heart so that they may believe. That's exactly what Paul's talking about here. The circumcision that matters isn't outward, it's inward of the heart, and it's by the Spirit. So those who have the Spirit come to faith in the Messiah. There are no two tiers of Christians some who have the Spirit and some who don't, some who have a greater amount of the Spirit and those who have less. No, by the Spirit, you come to faith in Jesus. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't come to faith in Jesus. Notice, if you come to faith in Jesus, your praise is going to be from God, not from men. Why do I say that? Because today you and I are surrounded by a culture that lives for the unholy trinity of the Marxist left, race, class, gender, race, class, gender. They see everything through that, and they're going to live ultimately only for here and now from the praises of men, 
not for the praises of God. That's what they're living for. How did it come about? Let me do a little of apologetics with you. 1930s, the Frankfurt School of Marxists realized that in America, there's not this big tension that they thought there would be between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie. The proletariat are the have-nots. The bourgeoisie are the haves. The Marxists want the battle between the have-nots, what they deem to be the worker, the proletariat, and the bourgeoisie, the business owner. But in America, they're getting along too well. Why? Because in America, their identity isn't just wrapped up in what they do. It's wrapped up in being an American, having liberty. But most importantly for many, it's because they serve the God of Israel. Not, not, not everyone. It's never been a Christian nation. Not, not, I've already mentioned only Israel's God's nation. But there were many who believed. And so they didn't identify just as the haves and the have-nots. And so what did the Marxists decide to do? Well, we're going to force the divide. And we're going to inject race and gender. So in the 1960s, Cloward and Piven, two left-wing Marxist professors, you can read about this, by the way, in Mark Levin's great book, American Marxism. He's a good scholar on that. Cloward and Piven say, let's divide people not just about class, but through race and gender. So what you and I are witnessing today when we see the demand by so many to bring the drag queen show before the five-year-olds in your kindergarten and the LGBTQ here and LGBTQ here, the whole design of it is the Marxist design to force them to be the have-nots and all of us to be the oppressive haves so that there's going to be a battle so that America could be thrown down Marxism will rise up. What you have to know is the focus on this race, class, gender is from the pit of hell. And it's, yes, it's gonna, they're going to get the praises of men temporarily, those who do it, but their praise will never come from God. Listen to the great rebuttal that we have. If you're going to follow Christ and the God of Israel, here's the rebuttal to race, class, gender in our day. It's found in Galatians 3.28. The Apostle Paul says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. First of all, race, there's no Jew nor Greek. There's no Jew nor Gentile. Now, does Paul mean by that that there's no distinctions between the nations? No. In fact, when, if you'll watch my eschatology course, someday I'm going to come into the eternal states. Do you realize that even in the eternal states, there are going to be nations? Yes, they're going to be comprised only of believers, but there will be nations even with the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. So the nations aren't going away. Karl Marx will not have his dream, as he outlined at the end of the Communist Manifesto, and have his one world order. A borderless world, as the Beatles sang about. That's not going to ever come about ultimately. There's always going to be nations. So Paul's point is that, that not that there's not going to be nations. It's that it doesn't matter what nation you come from, in order to please God. Your ethnicity, your race, it means nothing. Zero. Get over yourself. That's what it means to this culture. I'm not saying it to you, brothers and sisters. I'm saying it to the culture. What impresses God is his son. What does the heavenly father say from heaven at the Mount of Transfiguration? This is my beloved son. With him, I'm well pleased. Has he ever said that about the rest of us? Uh, no. So how are you going to be connected to that son? It's by faith alone. You see, that's why Paul is saying it doesn't matter your nationality. What a, so that's your race. What about your class? You can be the poorest person or the wealthiest man on the planet or woman. None of that matters. Being poor won't commend you to God and being rich won't either. What matters to God is faith alone and Jesus Christ alone. What about gender, male nor female? Again, Paul is not claiming that there are no distinctions between the genders. There are. There are differences between men and women. Trust me, I've been married for a lot of years. I know this by now. I know I'm not an inspired source, but all of you who have been married know that there are differences, and they're good ones. But what he's saying is that when it comes to salvation, it doesn't matter. Your gender won't impress God one bit. Bob DeWay did a wonderful job today in Sunday school. He said, at the end of the day, and this is the truth that we all have to come away with, is there's only two races. Those who are in Adam 
and those who are in Christ. What must you do to be in Adam? You're born. What must you do to be in Christ? Be born again. Faith in the Messiah. And where is your praise going to come from? It's going to come not just merely from the Marxists and the professors and men temporarily here and now. It's going to come from God eternally. That's the praise that everyone should live for. Let's come to our final point then today. The grand point in Matthew 8, 5 through 13, is that salvation's always been by faith alone. That's what we learn from this Gentile Roman centurion. The Bible teaches that the only way any of us can have the forgiveness of sins is by faith in Christ. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans 3, 23 through 25. Romans 3, 23 through 25. Sorry, your Bible's getting a workout. It's probably going to all be worn out by the time you get home. It'll just be falling apart. Romans 3, 23 through 25. Please turn there. One of the reasons I like to turn to this is in Romans 3, 23 through 25, you see both the problem and the provision succinctly stated by Paul. What's the problem? Romans 3.23, here's the problem that we have as human beings. It says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Stop there. Later in Romans 6.23, we learn that the wages of our rebellion is death. Do you ever wonder if things happen by chance? Why isn't there one person that happens to live by chance forever? You see, death is a design by God. It's appointed once for a man to die, and after that comes judgment. That's the grand point. And so, yes, that's a grand problem, this death because of our rebellion. Notice in verse 24, then, we have the provision. What's the provision? Let's read verse 24. It says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Notice the phrase being justified as a gift. The term justified there has to do with being declared righteous forevermore in the sight of God. Notice it's through the redemption, that is the purchased back, which is found in Christ Jesus. Think of that as a camp. Christ Jesus, if you belong to him by faith, you're in his sphere. So this salvation, this being justified, is only found in Christ Jesus, no one else. There's no other religious leader. There's no other system of spirituality or politics. It's found in Christ Jesus. Notice verse 25. What did God do with Christ Jesus? Verse 25 says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. Stop there. Why is it significant that God displayed publicly Christ as a propitiation? Go back to Israel. When Israel sacrificed on the Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur, it was one day in the whole year where the high priest in went into the Holy of Holies and no one could see him. No one could see it. One man, one day, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes in and he provides the atonement. No one can see it, but Jesus is publicly displayed, open for all to see the once and for all sacrifices that all of the other sacrifices merely hinted and pointed to. Notice it says that God displayed him publicly as a propitiation. The term propitiation there, hysterion, comes right from the mercy seat, which was in the Holy of Holies, that the high priest would put the blood of the, the bull on. The blood would go on the hysterion, the mercy seat. And what was the image? As God dwelt in a Shekinah glory and he looked down at the broken law within his covenant, his anger was appeased by the shed blood. Propitiation, therefore, means, it comes right from the mercy seat, that God's anger has been appeased. Why? Because Jesus Christ's death took upon himself the full measure of God's wrath. Because Jesus was perfect, he didn't have to pay for his own debt, he could pay for ours. And his substitutionary death, therefore, was a propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath. Notice it says, in his blood, that's just a summary of his death, but notice how is it accessed? Is it through works? Is it through genetics? Is it through race? Is it through class? Is it through gender? No, it says through faith. Through faith. Christ's propitious work 
on the cross will only be given to those who have faith in him. That's the idea. Now, in the very next chapter in Romans, Paul proves in Romans 4 that this system of faith alone salvation has always been the case. And he cites Abraham as the example. Romans 4, 9 through 11, he says, Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised also? For we say faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Notice the first question Paul asks. When Abraham was justified before God, was it while he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, it was while he was uncircumcised. Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Not until two chapters later do you have the right of circumcision. So circumcision, that work, didn't save. It's by faith alone. That's Paul's point. So why did he receive circumcision? Notice the sign of circumcision was a sign and a seal of the righteousness he already had. Why are you and I baptized in order to be saved? No. By the way, I'm not bringing a one-to-one relationship between circumcision and baptism. But why are we baptized? Is it so that you and I will be saved? No, it's a sign of the salvation that we have. Right now, notice why that was important. We have a purpose statement. It says, so that he might be the father of all who believe. First, those who are without the circumcision, that is the Gentile, The very next verse, in verse 12, he also is the father of those who are the Jew, those who are circumcised. So it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile. What matters is that you have faith. If you have faith in the Messiah, you're saved. If you don't, you're lost. Do you realize today that the Roman Catholic Church anathematizes anyone who just would teach what I just taught you? What does it mean to be anathematized? It means to be declared cursed of hell. In the Council of Trent, anyone who says that salvation is by faith alone is called cursed of hell by the Roman Catholic Church. The irony is the Apostle Paul in Galatians 1, 8 through 9 anathematizes anyone who differs with him. Paul says that if you don't teach faith alone, You're actually the one who's cursed of hell. So we got ourselves a standoff. It's either the Roman Catholic Church or it's the Apostle Paul. Which way is it going to be? I'm going with Paul. I'm going with him. The Apostle Paul says, if you don't believe it's by faith alone, you're cursed of hell. That's exactly what we're reading in these texts. Dear ones, the Protestant Reformation still matters. We're still protesting. We don't have, without faith alone, we have nothing in common with anybody who claims to belong to Christ. Without faith alone, we have no justification with our God. That's how critical this is still today. And again, we learn the great lesson from the Roman centurion. Now, let's put it together. I want to put two points together. The last slide. The Old Testament predicted... Gentile inclusion, and that Gentile inclusion was by faith alone. Notice what Paul says, Galatians 3, 8 through 9. He says, The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Notice when Paul says, notice in blue, the scripture for seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. What scripture? Well, Paul's talking about the Old Testament, isn't he? What passage does he cite? Notice here in all caps, he cites Genesis 12.3, the one that you and I looked at together earlier. What's the inspired inference Paul comes to? So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. It doesn't matter your race, doesn't matter your class, doesn't matter your gender, 
All that impresses God is his son. The only way that you can belong to him is by faith alone. Let us be those, dear ones, who forsake the culture that you and I will no longer be those who focus on race, class, gender, the unholy trinity of Karl Marx in America today. Let us be those who focus on what really impresses God, faith alone. Today we saw a Roman centurion, a Gentile, one of the most hated men in all of Israel, come to salvation. Why? Because of his works? No. Because of his race? Certainly not. But because he had faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for the truth that salvation has always been and will always be by faith alone. We, we thank you, Lord, that in your kingdom, race, class, gender ultimately doesn't matter, that you love us as individuals and you call us out of this world by the power of your grace. I do pray, Heavenly Father, for my brothers and sisters that you give them opportunity to proclaim your gospel. I pray for all of us, Lord, that you'd give us the opportunity and the boldness. I, I pray for hearts of our loved ones, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers that don't know you, Lord. I do pray you regenerate them. Give us ample opportunity to proclaim the gospel to them. We pray for their salvation. We pray for our kids. We pray for our grandkids, that they would come to faith, that they would be justified by faith alone in Christ alone. We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen.